The Full Exposure Podcast is made possible by Metro Health, University of Michigan Health, and Dr. Peter Hahn in appreciation for the contributions that artists and creative minds provide to our community. Arts and culture are essential to a rich and rewarding life, strengthening our overall well-being and our appreciation of all that we see, hear, and experience. Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition of Full Exposure with me, your host, Brian Kelly. This is another special COVID-19 edition of the podcast. I'm very pleased and honored to have Dr. Rakesh Pai, uh, who is essentially the number two uh, administrator doctor at Metro Health University of Michigan Health here in our community in West Michigan. This is a very serious episode, folks. If you... Um, have not taken this uh, seriously, this uh, pandemic that we're part of here in Michigan. Uh, This is the episode that hopefully will um, help to wake you up to the seriousness of what's happening in our community. I don't mean to be uh, overly dramatic uh, or speak with any hyperbole. We are in a serious crisis, and uh, Dr. Pai um, easily and very conversationally presents the real realities that we're facing here in our community. One of my main takeaways is that uh, we've severely under-tested in the state of Michigan as well as across the country. We have confirmed positive tests throughout the community and uh, just by using math and uh, other scientific data, uh, Dr. Pai projects that many, many, many hundreds of thousands of people in Michigan, not across the country, in Michigan, are already affected now, infected with COVID-19. It's a good conversation. Uh, It should um, wake all of us up to what we can do and um, how we should modify our behavior to stop the pandemic because uh, this is serious. So I'm extremely grateful to Dr. Pai for taking time out of his incredibly chaotic and, and hectic schedule to have such a candid and raw conversation about the scientific data and how health officials are planning to keep our community safer, to keep it healthier, and to be um, as prepared as possible in times that are, again, unprecedented and all kinds of challenges are getting thrown at uh, all of our hospital systems here as they prepare for a surge, and a surge is coming. There's no doubt about that. So we're just in the start of this, but uh, there's hope and there's hope in our leaders like Dr. Pai and uh, just the measured and um, knowledgeable track that they are trying to move our health systems forward to organize and uh, plan for keeping all of us safer and healthier. We can all do our part. And it's amazing that we can just do our part by staying home and taking that seriously. So without further ado, let's explore the bigger picture with Dr. Rakesh Pond. Slate. Sorry, the technical thing is slate, not a clapper. Okay. Uh, but yeah, le- learning. Le- let's just, uh, I want to just want to welcome you, Dr. Pai. It's great to have you here. It's uh, an unusual time. I'm glad that we can be talking, but as we record this today, which is, uh, what day is it? Wednesday? No, Thursday, March 26th. Yep. You know, this is the information we're dealing with. So I don't typically timestamp 
our conversations on the podcast, but for the benefit of our audience, you know, uh, information from your perspective is changing constantly. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so as of today on Thursday, March 26th, this is what we're dealing with with COVID-19. Will you just explain your, your job title and your role? Because it's a unique thing in a healthcare organization. You are sort of perch in, in terms yeah. of how you look at Metro Health University, Michigan Health. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, thanks Brian, for the opportunity to be here uh, today. My role is I, I have a kind of two different jobs at Metro. I'm, I'm what they call the, the president of our medical group. We have about 300 employed physicians and advanced practice practitioners who are nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, et cetera, that are, that, that are employed by our hospital system. So I, I'm sort of the leader of that unique population. And then my other role is really has to do with uh, I'm the chief population health officer at Metro Health. And I saw that, and uh-huh. I was like... Okay, that's an unusual title. You don't normally see that in an organization yes. as a sort of a corporate suite executive. What does that mean for you and so your role? Historically, that's meant um, how do we think about transitioning our healthcare system from the more you do, the more you get, to um, building programs that are really focused on the outcomes for the patients. If you got a knee replacement or if you have heart failure or... What are the quality metrics that we have to focus on for our diabetic population or mm. heart disease population or lung disease population? So it's kind of creating those programs to really get those special populations of people with those diseases the best possible outcomes at the lowest possible costs. I think now today it's kind of pivoted even a little bit more to thinking about how are we protecting the metro? You know all the different populations that interact with sure. uh, patients at this point in time with this pandemic. You know, taking yeah. care, making sure our physicians are well protected, our our nurses who are going to be very critical and on the front lines, our medical assistants, respiratory therapists. How do we stand up our virtual platform on the dime, right? Because we were right. we were a little bit lagging in that regard, and I think this pandemic, this crisis has you know, accelerated the adoption of virtual care video visits, right? Yeah. We're delivering that now. Well, it makes total sense, yep. and the, especially during this window of this outbreak. I mean, it makes complete sense if you just... You know, have some minor symptoms that aren't don't seem to be related to uh, COVID nineteen or something. You, yeah, of course, do a virtual visit. It helps everybody. Um, in terms of the the community and the pop, the population part of it, are you also drilling down into sort of uh, our specific demographics of our region? In terms of like, do we have maybe not specifically, but are you have an eye and ear out for ailments and sort of trends and health that impact our particular wider region of West Michigan? Is that part of your purview? Yeah, so I I think uh, it does encompass a public health perspective. Um, Certainly, we've been on calls with the Kent County Health Department. We're, you know, on calls with the governor, the Michigan Hospital Association, just trying to learn as much as we can from our colleagues in this state, Mm -hmm. Um, learning from other countries in the United uh, in the rest of the world and how they've uh, handled the crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of different uh, countries have had very different experiences. I think um, a lot of your listeners and viewers would be aware of what's happened in Italy, yeah. uh, which is a particularly dire kind of outcome. Um, Italy, Spain is going through it even. In Spain, like Spain is, boy, they are, they are in a fight 
as much and maybe trending even worse than Italy in some cases, the way I understand it. No, absolutely. And I think part of the part of the things that we take from that, from this population health perspective, is that those countries are somewhat different than us. Yeah. Um, in the northern um, region of Italy called the Lombardy region, that's where their manufacturing hub is. Their medical sophistication is very, very high. Uh, the wealth is kind of concentrated in that part of the state. Maybe it's kind of like their California or or something of that nature. Um, So they're very medically sophisticated, and they have a very high prevalence uh, of older people that live there. Um, Italy is an older, you know, if we took the mean age or the median age of that country, it skews a little bit older. It might be 49 or 50 or something like that, which is quite old. And here in the States, you know, those numbers might be in the lower... 40s. The birth rates in Italy are low. In Spain, they're low. And I think that has to deal with their economic opportunity. You know, mm-hmm. couples, families don't expand if the economic opportunities aren't there. It's expensive to have children, raise children. And those countries have struggled from the 08, 09 crisis. Sure. Some would say they maybe never totally bounced back like maybe we did here uh, yeah. in the United States. And so birth rates really... Um, impact your population. And I would say Italy's experience is different because they, they have more older people and those older people get more severe disease with COVID-19 sure. or outcomes. Yeah. Well, and they're more likely to live multi-generationally in, in the same household, Absolutely. which uh, and, you know, concentrates people in a way that's different than maybe we do yep. here in the States in between, um, you know, we all have our quarter acre, half acre house and yeah. four, four to five people live in it yep. and your neighbors are a little more distant while they live much more concentrated in terms of even in small, town, small villages they cluster. Absolutely. And if you look at some of the more densely populated regions like Milan or Bergamo. I mean, people are very tightly packed on these literally cobblestone streets and two or three story walk-up apartments, you know, yeah. and you can kind of see, you know, you're, you're very close together. And I think that's also a factor. Yeah. Uh, and culturally, you know, I mean, just to you know, paint with wide brushes, I mean, they're very social people and uh, walking at night, Spain to the, you know, taking, um, you know, it's a very social, uh, people gather around food. It's part of their traditions and culture. And these are really hard things to... Uh, how they greet how they greet people yeah, yeah. right with the kisses, the kisses the double kicks yeah. i mean so that that's all going to evolve and change i yeah. think yeah well yeah hopefully we just yeah we get get a handle on it but just talk uh, let's set the frame for you uh back 6 or 8 weeks ago when maybe uh you can time stamp it however you want but when did when did the the drums seem to get really louder for you in terms of okay this is something that is going to have a huge impact on our community. Yeah, so um, I actually spent some time in China around the winter holidays of, at the end of the year 2019. Um, and in China, there wasn't a lot of um, news flow regarding the outbreak there in the Hubei province, mm-hmm. uh, which is where the city of Wuhan is located. Um, but when I came back, when I started to read, because it was all... You can't get American news in, in that country. It's all internet sort of sure. locked down. So when I came back, I started just Googling, you know, what's what's going on in China with this, because there's little smatterings of it. You would hear kind of yeah. um, little chatter on the streets there. So then I started to read, and there was some reporting from, you know, credible organizations, the New England Journal, you know, uh, Wall Street Journal, um, New York Times, that this was happening there, right? And then it was happening at scale. 
that was kind of in the middle of January. And I started to become concerned because I felt that um, the world is very flat in 2020, meaning yeah. you can connect to another country very, very quickly um, through Amsterdam or Tokyo or the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, you can get anywhere from anywhere, basically. And it would became clear that um, China was not necessarily curtailing or capping or shutting down international air travel. So people might fly from Wuhan to Singapore and attend a conference. Sure. Right. And I think there was, that's a pretty well-known example. And then those people are from all over the world go wherever. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then I became very concerned about that kind of middle of January. What I was less informed about was the rapidity or how quickly that interconnectedness would light all these fires across the globe Yeah, where there's not any country that hasn't had a case. And if they haven't had a case, it's just they don't have the ability to test for it, right? right? So all 140 countries or 200 countries, whatever, how many ever countries there are in the, in the world um, now has this. And so that, that match to kerosene, I, I underestimated yeah. uh, rather severely. And I wasn't alone. I think a lot sure. of us did. Yeah. So how quickly that got everywhere quickly. And when you talk about New York JFK or you talk about SFO, San Francisco's International Airport, yeah. SEA Seattle, LAX, I mean, those are all ports for yeah. the world. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. if you're going west, you're probably going to go through San Fran or Seattle for Ab- sure. Absolutely. And New York going the other way. Yeah. So it's uh, it makes sense. And brings me to a point we were chatting about briefly earlier, but we can drill into it more, was, um, you know, when you really pay attention to the science and the doctors and the pandemic experts and, uh-huh. the, and, and the infectious disease experts, and that's where it oriented my thinking, and I'm no expert, but just as a layman, um, it oriented me really quickly to how serious this is, because... What we've seen now in the last six or eight weeks is everything that the science and the pandemic experts and and the infectious disease doctors have been saying is going to happen has come true. Like those are facts, right? Like it's pretty much there hasn't been a lot of misinformation that had to be retooled back based on what people understand about how pandemics work. I think there's been what we're learning about how COVID nineteen works specifically, but in terms of uh, how we get information on the internet or through the news media or through government officials, that always hasn't been trended as true. And that's informed a lot of our thinking, at least in how communities and uh, you, Joe, and Mary on the street are responding to this. So from your perspective, just talk about this, the science of it, what you understand about pandemics in terms of what you've learned from other experts and and what that speaks yeah. for your own personal urgency in terms of what you're doing at Metro. Yeah, so I think, um, Brian, that's a, that's a really great question. I think we have had these sporadic outbreaks, shall we say, um, throughout for, for many decades, uh, going back to the Spanish flu in 1917, 1980, 18, where I think up to a quarter of the world's population, I'm not exactly sure how many people that was, were just wiped out by yeah. this disease, uh, pandemic, in terms of how do we quell this, how do we kill this, how do we fight this virus, it remains today um, public health measures, which are things like social distancing. I guess, you know, these are, it's a new word to describe basically, you know, staying Mm -hmm. 
away from other people as you walk and interact in the community and the environment. And being very particular about washing hands and, you know, if you come in from another environment, putting your clothes or shoes aside, wash your hands before you Mm -hmm. touch a loved one or give someone a hug or kiss or some things of that nature, right? It really is those things that are really, really important to block the contagion of of, um, viruses. Mm -hmm. Um, But we've had these sporadic outbreaks more recently than the Spanish flu, things like the Middle Eastern respiratory virus called MERS. Mm -hmm. Um, That's another coronavirus that impacted... uh, people in the Middle East. Uh, We've had things like um, SARS, which is another um, severe acute respiratory disorder uh, syndrome. That's another virus uh, we think comes from animals to humans some way. Uh, In the case of SARS, we felt it was bats that transmitted something maybe to cats and then maybe to humans. Mm -hmm. That's how we traced that. This uh, COVID-19 SARS-2 is what the technical name of it is, um, is is a virus that we think came from exotic animals that the Chinese, um, I think, consumed as food to human and then, you know, spread throughout Wuhan um, very quickly. But it remains public health measures and things like uh, what these state governors are doing in these various impacted states, you know, call out to Dr. Uh, Governor Cuomo, Jay Inslee and on Washington State, Gavin Newsom, I think in California was probably locked down earlier. Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, I forget the governor's name there, but yeah, um, <clears throat> I do know his name. I just not off the top of my head. Yeah, so uh, Dewine, Mike Dewine. Yeah, so he, <clears throat> excuse me, he he gets a lot of credit for locking down yeah. earlier, and and so and I think that's really really important, and I think these are all steps that you know many people have heard this, and and my colleague. Uh, Dr. Han had mentioned this, really this flattening the curve, which has become ubiquitous. Yeah, It's really trying to prevent new cases from cropping up because mm-hmm. we don't want to overwhelm healthcare resources, okay. whether it be... So devil's advocate, yep. sir. Yep. <clears throat> um, but, you know, mo- the vast majority of people are not going to become seriously ill by this. So why are we taking this so seriously as a community? Why are we locking down our economy? Why are we ruining America? You know, what, what's that? Uh, explain from flattening the curve of why this has been important and maybe the challenges of getting the messages out of yeah. how we so vastly need to curtail some things. Yeah, so I think if you look at the various different um, models, predictive models out there, and the University of Pennsylvania has a a model called the the Chime model, UPenn Chime model. The University of Michigan School of Public Health has a model out there, and it's just talking about the exponential growth in infected patients, yeah. including asymptomatic patients. Yeah, um, that's somewhere between you know we got about three hundred thirty million Americans. You know, uh, there's some models that say twenty five to thirty five million of us, ten percent or so, might get this virus and of those that get this virus you know somewhere in the five to eight to ten percent may develop more severe illness with this Mm -hmm. it's very clear that if it stays in the upper respiratory tract where you have a fever cough um, things of that nature versus the lower respiratory tract where you might develop more shortness of breath it starts to get deeper in the lungs Mm -hmm. That, that the outcomes there start to diverge, meaning the upper respiratory tract um, tends to have very mild symptoms. 
the more lower respiratory tract with now shortness of breath and inability to breathe uh, as effectively, that impacts people very differently. And I think the flattening the curve is really a strategy around trying to reduce the number of new cases. And we don't know who's going to be severe, who's not going to have, you know, who's going to get severe. Well, we're seeing a little bit more of that with younger people, some of them requiring care that didn't really think would be as severe. So really the individual to individual, it's a little harder to predict. I think the at-risk populations are still traditionally at risk, older yeah. people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just people with other, uh, of any age who have some other complicating factor that would be agitated by, by COVID-19. They're at a special risk. But, um, but yeah, you don't really know. I think that's one of the challenges is you don't really yeah. know exactly if I get this, if I'm going to require hospitalization or not. Yeah. So I think, you know, the health system is really the, the, if you need a breathing machine, to be on a ventilator to support your breathing because of this severe inflammatory response in your lungs. And if you have 10% of the population infected and some fraction of that's going to need this type of care, just by on orders of magnitude to have so many people potentially needing this type of care at nearly the same time creates this fear, frankly, in my, in, in my eyes and in my gut uh, about how could we care for all those people simultaneously, possibly at once. Sure. It's frightening, and I think that's that's what's got everybody that truly knows about mm-hmm. pandemics and our healthcare physicians, nurses, etc., really concerned. Is that we're, the system isn't designed for so many people to simultaneously have to need this type of care at the same time? Yeah. Well, and the other complicating factor is that why we do need to keep it, I think, more serious is that there's a lot of people that need hospitalizations every day that are completely unrelated to COVID-19. They're already part of the system or, or they're a part of the inflow and outflow of patient care through any hospital system. But say I come in with the elevated heart rate and I may be having a heart attack or some other chest mm-hmm. pain. If, if your staff is already overwhelmed with COVID-19 patients, and the tax the system, I mean, that might that system of having maybe a mild heart attack might actually have an outcome much worse than it would have under normal circumstances. So thank you for asking that question, because I think that's a great point. Um, 90% of us aren't going to really get this, and it's not going to be an issue for us, you know, presumably. Mm-hmm. That does not mean that we don't have the other ailments that we normally have because they just those are things that happen. And a heart attack's a great example. And I think what I'm worried about as a healthcare leader and a physician is um, will our standard of care have to change for the, for the worse, right? Mm-hmm. Because of this prioritization piece that we have to do or that we have limited healthcare right. resources to devote to, to all the different people that need us at the same time. I mean, might you not have a real ICU nurse taking care of you in the sure. ICU. I mean, that's yeah. possible. Would you have a, you know, there's not enough intensive care physicians around to manage that surge in patients, right? So th- that's that makes me very, very uncomfortable, Brian. And yeah. it's, that's one thing that really keeps me up at night. Well, and I know, uh, let's talk about maybe what actions have been taken when you when you're in preparedness then at Metro Health you're trying to be as prepared as possible with the assets you have and what you can gather but um, maybe just to uh, inform our, our community here in West Michigan about 
Um, there's been a couple things. Your your colleague, Dr. Peter Hahn, was talking about the, the tremendous coordination between our big three hospital systems, but also just what you're doing at Metro Health to um, you know gear up and um, be as prepared as possible for yeah. a potential surge. Yeah. Um, again, thanks again for that question. Also, I mean, I think uh, you mentioned the multi-system collaboration, and I think collaborating in healthcare can be challenging for a lot of different reasons. But yeah. I would say. In terms of visitor policies and, and surge plans and things of that nature, I think all the same, all three systems are on on solid footing and in yeah. lockstep with one another. And this, I just, I don't want to belabor the point, but like typically healthcare systems, they vigorously uh, compete, and it's it's a rough and tumble wor- world in terms of healthcare system to healthcare system in terms of battling for uh, you know the the trust of the community for their healthcare. So. Uh, but the fact that the gloves are off now in terms of just uh, coordinating resources and messaging, I think, is the most important thing, is have a unified message about how we're supposed to handle it from the healthcare perspective. Yeah. I mean, I would say um, the gloves are off right now. We're, we're um, to, to focus a little bit back on Metro for just yeah. a little bit, um, we've had to make some really uncomfortable calls. And, and you mentioned earlier how things are so rapidly evolving. I mean, I... Um, Last Thursday, uh, which seems like a long time ago, because <laughs> it's uh, seven days uh, later now. But you know, I, I woke up and um, was just checking through my messages and just looking at the news. And I always check some of the medical. I, I like. I love to read about medical history, medical journals, and things of that nature. And just because it became very worrisome signals, how cases went from fifty to a thousand, you know, and yeah. seemingly very quickly, right? And so. I began to feel like we need to prioritize now. We need to keep people healthy now. We need to think about delivering care differently mm-hmm. now, and we need to shut or pivot or 180 now. So I gave my team the directive of, look, we're, we have 18 clinics sprinkled throughout the community in a number of different locations, and I said, we need to um, stop seeing patients face-to-face Right, mm-hmm. uh, and and to keep that in perspective, we do about almost twenty three hundred visits each business day across all those areas face to face. Yeah. So to sit, turn that off was major impact. Yeah, like a major adverse impact. Sure. <laughs> frankly, yeah. right. And for, so, well, just from from a business standpoint, but also for the community. Yeah. That, you know, they're used to going in and seeing their doctor. Yeah. And and, uh, and yeah. then for the hundred and sixty physicians or so, they're used to coming to their clinic and seeing their 15, 20, how many ever patients they see. So this is a diff- very different thing. And I had to tell them, yeah, uh, you know, we're going to wind down face-to-face visits as of whatever this Friday, report to your normal clinic on Monday, you're going to get education on how to do a telephone visit yeah. okay, to, as, a, as a bridge, and then you're going to do video visits three or four days later. Yeah. Right, and everyone's going to do this at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so, so everyone was on this WebEx, you know, a bunch of doctors and, and nurse practitioners and et cetera on this WebEx, learning how to do these types of visits, right? Because they had less things to do because it weren't, it wasn't safe to see the patients face to face. And yeah. I think, you know, so that we had to pivot like within a matter of days. Not and and these are workflows normally that take months to perfect. Yeah. Yeah, well, right. There's, there's some, a major organizational yeah, yeah, yeah. change in how you and there's a technology integration piece that's not simple. Yeah, and there's uh, and then some of these physicians and APPs ultimately we would, will be delivering this care in the safety of their own home. 
Yeah. Right. So that's another thing with their care team, the people they're used to bumping into and say, Hey, can you help me with this or that? They're not going to have that. So, yeah. So it was a, it was a big organizational lift. So that's one thing we did. We, we turned off the face to face. We did, we turned on telephone and virtual video visits mm-hmm. on a dime. We um, prioritized some of our clinics to be the sick patient clinics, so yeah. where we could see patients with respiratory syndrome, right? We really think it's important to protect the hospital, yeah. right? You can't say the, going to the ER is not the answer right now. Yeah. It's, we really got to keep only that place is for those people that only really need to be there. And sure. the ER could get very easily overwhelmed. So that's one thing we did, open up the sick clinics. Yeah. And then the last thing I think that's really important that we did is we started to think about our pools of predominantly ambulatory physicians historically mm-hmm. that could help in the hospital if necessary. And that's for the nurse practitioners, PAs, yeah. and the physicians. So we have physicians that are trained as internal medicine physicians and maybe haven't done as much hospital medicine in the last few years because they've been more outpatient focused, but sort of on a volunteer basis say, if you guys need me, we'll back up our hospitalists. Yeah. Our pulmonologists are saying, because a lot of them trained as critical care physicians, they're saying, hey, we're on deck to back up our intensivists. Yeah. We know they're Unfortunately, healthcare workers are going to get exposed. Some of them might develop symptoms yeah. of the disease, and then they have to have some sort of self quarantine process. So they'd be that team would be out for a bit. Yeah, you know, and I just hate to read those stories of emergency room physicians or intensive care physicians get this from patients, and then you know, well, we're seeing that already yeah. in New York yeah. and other you know markets like as, as you mentioned, Seattle and San Francisco. I mean, the, the it happens quickly in the domino effect in terms of how you can manage this on the front lines of people coming in and getting sicker and then uh, it's a true challenge because uh, once you have an exposure or you're sick you're out for you know uh, what at least two weeks probably yeah right? that's uh, that's a little bit fluid yeah. um, the generally the mean time to getting the disease after exposure is about five five and a half days. Mm-hmm. So maybe the self quarantining process might be able to be a little bit shorter. It's a little, it's a potentially a little, squishy. little squishy, a little yeah. dicey, and you know it has to do with what what the need is. You know, right yeah. now we're kind of in pre surge mode. You know, yeah. we COVID nineteen is in our hospital system. It's in every hospital system yeah. in this part of the state. You know, compared to compared to the east side of the state, West Michigan's been f- fairly lucky, at least to this ta- time stamp of not having as many cases. Um, but is COVID nineteen here? Have you have you worked on patients at Metro Health with this uh, official condition? Yes, uh, COVID nineteen is in West Michigan. Um, it's been in our hospital. We we had our first confirmed diagnosed case uh, fairly recently within the last few days. Um, we have several more patients that are presumed COVID nineteen positive patients, and they're in the all the precaution areas of the hospital, mm-hmm. special rooms, things of that nature, respiratory droplet precautions, personal protective equipment to take care of those patients. So, yeah, it's 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 here. Whether you're a big system or a small system or a medium sized system, it's absolutely here. I I'm kind of telling my family and and um, my team that we need probably need to assume one in eight, one in ten of us. Um, has recently been infected. And, and part of the challenge with this disease is that there are so many mild or not symptomatic uh, patients that when, you're, when you don't have symptoms, you don't know what to do. So you're doing what you do. And, yeah, and you're not going to modify yeah, if you feel healthy. Yeah, it's, it's like, you know, and I think Kevin Durant's story kind of comes to mind. Uh, he got it 
you know, from, from maybe a game or a fan or something, but he's like, I had nothing. And like, and if someone just didn't test me, I wouldn't have known, I would have been doing what I normally do. I mean, I would have sheltered in place because I'm in New York, I get that, or New Jersey, but you know, it's just, um, yeah, that makes it tricky. And I think one of the things that's really challenging for America right now and Michigan in particular as well is there's some rationing kind of going on here, right? We don't have 300 million testing kits, right? right? We have a fraction of that, and then also the so person. How how, yeah. how does that impact you? I mean, is that I know we should be testing a lot more, right? Yeah. So I think the science is the science suggests we probably don't need to do that, but I think there's a there's a irrationality, there's a panic, there's a uh, I want to protect my mother, and my father. Um, for children, this is a a non-issue for the vast majority of them. Men seem to be preferentially hit with this compared to women. That's some new data that's come out of China, verified by Italy and Japan and South Korea. So so I do think if we could, in in order to allay fear, I think there's a couple things that probably would be done in a totally perfect utopic scenario, and that is that we would have anyone that thought they needed a test can get it. (laughs) I think that's one thing. And, and, then, and then the appropriate isolation slash treatment or sure. observation would be done for those people. And then two is, you know, personal protective equipment. If you think for whatever reason, when you go to the grocery store, you need a mask, yeah. okay, sure. have it. Now, there's a science that says, look, maybe this isn't necessary. It's most important for those that actually have symptoms and coughing yeah. to, to mask so that they don't have these respiratory droplets that get other people sick. Yeah. But we're in this sort of irrational time and, and rationing too yeah, and so rationing we don't even stuff, have the, the right. masks yeah. and we're seeing right. in the, yesterday a lot of uh, the hospital systems in metro was one of them that are accepting supplies uh, donations and yeah. that's an unusual time to prepare for that and just not have something as critical as masks or testing kits i just want to bring up another point about testing kits before we move on it's just that because we've been under testing uh, in the United States, yep. or not able to test uh, as many people as need to be tested, is that the numbers of confirmed cases seem to be a lot less than probably what we have. And the ramifications on public behavior, because the curve is spiking like crazy, given the tests that we have uh, completed, the number of cases is rising exponentially. So getting the public's attention in the thing where we're, not, we're also not confirming cases at a rate that you know as a health official are out there, this is exasperating a lot of communication problems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you can take the number of COVID-19 positive tested patients and multiply that by some factor of 20 to 50 wow. infected. You know, wow. So if you say there's... 30,000 people here infected or 20,000 people in this state, or if you say there's 200,000 people in the United States, multiply that by a bigger number. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably how many true cases there might be out there. Yeah. And this Mm. is the, you know, and I don't want to belabor the point, but this is the challenge about social media in these days and just news organizations and, and health organizations to get that out about how serious it is. If you look at the data, that's one thing. But I think what you're saying is, is uh, so powerful in terms of that it's somewhat chilling in the fact that we've tested who we've tested, they've come back positive. The factor of people who are untested that you can just project with science and math that are infected 
is exponentially higher. Orders of magnitude larger, yep. So we need to be sheltering and doing things because if we really had tested, had some magic wand and we could test everybody right now, we would be blown away by how many people have COVID-19. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, could that be... Uh, could that be 800,000 people in this state, 500,000 people in this state, a state of 10 million people? Yeah. You're just yeah. talking about Michigan. I'm talking about, t- I'm talking about the state of Michigan where, yeah. where I live. But, yeah, I mean, but then you magnify, magnify that across the whole country, right, 330 yeah. million people. Yeah, we're talking 20, 30 million people. It, it could be, it could yeah. be that, yeah. <laughs> well, it's chilling, but it's also uh, it's an opportunity. So there is, there is hope. There is, uh, we can all continue to be vigilant about sheltering in place and minimizing our, our contact with people. Absolutely. Cleaning surfaces. Um, might be prudent to wear gloves when you're handling an Amazon box or mm-hmm. things of that nature. I think... Um, we just started <laughs> spraying at home with disinfectant, you know, just spraying with the antibacterial packages, yeah. our mail. Yeah, soap, <laughs> it's, it's water, a, I yeah. think bleach and dilution, not mixed with other... Um, Cleaners is probably a good idea. Hydrogen peroxide works well. Vinegar, we think, doesn't work as well to disinfect um, coronavirus surfaces. Okay. Just throwing that out there for the... It is such an odd thing to do. We had a package uh, delivered of some uh, supplies. My my middle daughter, as you know from... uh, we we met last year, yep. but uh, and worked together on a. She needs order. those supplies. Yeah, she needs those supplies, and it was delivered to the door. The 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 it was a, a third party vendor sort of delivery in a van. You know that they yeah. could deliver medical supplies. It wasn't Amazon Prime or the post office. Uh, arrived with a mask and gloves on, and handed me a clipboard that I had to sign with. You know all those things. But uh, just as a family to like go, okay, I'm going to spray this package down. It's a huge behavior modification because you don't really, I find them just speaking personally, like you, you're like, oh, is this really something I need to do and take serious? Or like that package probably isn't infected, you know, who knows? I think the point I'm trying to orient my behavior around is just behave more as if you have it and you're asymptomatic and, and pretend that that package was handled by somebody who was uh, infected. I'll keep my family safer, but it is a hard pivot as a person and our human behavior to take it that seriously. Yeah, and I and I and you're taking it like me as a medical professional. I'm I'm taking it that seriously as well, and it's lots of changes in workflow. Yeah, um, for sure, and it's not an easy thing to to pivot to. Yeah, um, but I think, um, and, and I know a little bit about your family, but I think it's those are all the right steps I'd take if if I had family members like like you do. Sure, and um, and I think um, it's just pre- it's just abundance of precaution yeah. is what's needed right now. Well, on mm-hmm. the other side, the funny part of that to me is, uh, you know, <laughs> we can really fight this enemy. You know, nine eleven was different. We had an enemy that yeah. we could point resources at and and go fight and and orient the country towards battling something. It was mm-hmm. tangible. Uh, it was terrorism or whatever we want to say about that. But uh, in this case, when have we ever been called upon as a country to stay home, eat great food, learn a skill, cook more, spend time with family and watch Netflix and meet, listen to music? Like, I mean, this is really, this isn't World War II and rationing in that sense. It's really just radically modifying 
and I don't mean to be over simplematic and trite or, or anything about it, but it really is that simple. When I when I'm tired of sheltering in place, I think of like this is how I orient my mind. That's how I try to get my teenagers to not be as restless at home. Yeah. It's like really you can do so much by doing so little. Yeah, we're we're not on the mountain for like, you know, 60 days in freezing cold weather, right? No. I mean, yeah. this is this is a very different Yeah. Um, and how fortunate we don't have to send soldiers out yeah. and, and put people at risk yeah. and send aircraft carriers right. and go right. bomb a foreign country. Right. We've done right. enough of that, yeah, trust we, me. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but anyway, this is it's a different way to orient, and I think as a society it's easy to get restless. Uh, you know, when, one, of the, one of the things I think is just really important, Brian, for the viewers and listeners to be aware of is that uh, some of these models are saying this could last more than a few weeks. Let's just put it that way. Could it be through the spring season? Could it be through a p- component of the summer season? You know, in my mind, I'm kind of telling my people that that's very, very possible. And so, um, and, and the shelter in place thing could be going for a while. I get a little nervous when I hear people want to turn the economy back on by sure. April or whatever day, Easter. Sure. You know, that makes me a little uncomfortable. And, and I get why people want well, to do that. To just go back to what we were talking about, I mean, the science points that it's not going to be done in April and Easter. It's magical thinking to think that. I think it's dangerous, and I'm not. It's not about politics. It's about messaging and facts, and the science isn't supporting that. I think Dr. Fauci, who is someone who's I think become very credible mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and is credible well before he was in the role he has now today. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the voices that should be the loudest in terms of not exasperating because we can turn the economy back on, but if we're right back where we started yeah. by in May 15 versus April, whatever Easter is this year, uh, the, yeah. it's going to be worse. Yeah, so and I, the outcome's going to be worse to the economy, which is everyone else is trying to protect so desperately so right I, now. So I think the message should be that if we do, like all these governors have already done, and we do that for... I don't know if it's 90 days or if it's 120 days, and we tell businesses it's going to really be bad for 90 or 120 days. But if we do this now, we can decrease cluster outbreaks of this stuff kind of cyclically coming in and back, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, you just got to really tamp it down hard. You got to yeah. hit it hard, and that means we have to be away from each other in business, in restaurants, and things like that. It's Well, and the hard part is, and I didn't mean to interrupt, but the, I just want to amplify it as that not everybody in the country is in the same point with this infection rate. So New York is one thing. We saw Governor Cuomo talking, you know, very specifically about they're in the fight right now. They're they're in it, and it's coming to maybe to West Michigan in a, a week or two in that way. It could be coming to Indianapolis and Chicago. But we're all in a little different timing in terms of how this uh, the symptoms and the and the severe illnesses present themselves. So and the surge is coming. Yeah. So that that's a great that's a great insight. And I will say that in China, the Hubei province. They really locked down about 110, 120 million people with intensive tracking and things of that nature. They they imported or exported, China, the rest of China exported about 40,000 medical professionals to that province, mm-hmm. which doubled their medical um, providers in right. that province. I think a similar scenario might play out here in the United States where you have rural, smaller states. I grew up in New Mexico, 
which is quite rural, mm-hmm. and Albuquerque is one of the more densely populated parts of that state. But they may not be as severely impacted by this. They will get some for sure. Sure. But they we might they might ex- New Mexico might export their intensivists, their respirators, and be other things to harder hit yeah. regions. Right. Meeting real time demand. Yeah, exactly. So I think we we will probably see that as this plays out over the weeks and months mm-hmm. ahead. And I think. You know, just to go back to your point about making being nervous about just you know flipping back the switch on the economy. Um, you know, it's not every large community is at that same point. So two weeks from now, there could be a community like Denver or a large, massive system in the in the middle part of the country mm-hmm. just starting to experience some types of surge. So to your point of whether it's thirty days, sixty days, one hundred twenty, who knows? The point is, it's a little early to be just saying, okay, we, we modified our behavior for two or three weeks, maybe a month. All right, let's, let's just uh, let it go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and, I, and, I, and I hate to pick on my, I love to travel, I love to be on the airplane. Yeah. I've always enjoyed that. You know, I know Delta, my airline, and, and others are really suffering right now. I just, I just think all that travel, the flatness of the world that we can be anywhere really quickly, um, probably amplifies the transmission of this virus. And I think, you know, um, I've I've canceled the next quarter or two of air travel. Just, I don't know. I think that's prudent. I'm just planning to explore my area here. (laughs) And I think that's going to be safest for everybody. And I know that's a big change because, you know, when you start hearing about, you know, my, my, um, medical society, the American College of Cardiology canceling a 30, $35,000 $35,000 meeting and that's happened many different gatherings. You know, we use, we do a lot of that here. I mean, yeah. that's, we go get new ideas. We run into other people. We listen to this and that, sure. but it, this, this, this and cultural events like yeah. South by Southwest. Yeah, canceling. Yeah, right, I mean, exactly. we're not going to do the Olympics this year. Wow. Yeah. You know, that's it, a, this is a massive impact. And so these are big, big epic events that are just postponing indefinitely or tra- yeah. transferring to another year. Yeah. What about the argument, uh, if you could speak to that, maybe the, the cure is worse than the disease in terms of how we're all modifying? I mean, can you just be candid about what you think about that? Just saying, well, certain number of people die from stuff all of different things every year. Heart disease, uh, diabetes, um, the flu. Um, just let this run its course and uh, survival of the fittest is kind of how we should approach this. Yeah, I mean, I would just, um, in those, there are patients, you know, like my parents and, you know, and, and many other grandparents out there. I just, I just think that's a, that's a little bit of a, a hollow argument in my, in my mind. The, the, the difference here is, and we can argue that some of those things you mentioned are modifiable, or potentially preventable, but there's, there's somewhat harder to prevent because it requires real prolonged lifestyle change, you sure. know, committing to exercise and eating green, healthy mm-hmm. foods and things of that nature, right? But this, this does have, I just feel like the sacrifice that we're asked to make for our fellow human being mm-hmm. is, um, is something we just got to do because yeah. otherwise lots of Americans, lots of people in the world are just going to senselessly die when we could have potentially just turned off our economy for a little bit and saved a million people. It, it, that's got to be worth something, right? And the, It has to. Uh, and the other thing I, I don't like about this argument about uh, maybe car accidents or uh, heart disease or hypertension and people yeah. die of all kinds of medical ailments, 
you know, if I eat too many cheeseburgers, I can't infect you with my... Yeah. And trust me, I eat too many cheeseburgers. <laughs> That's not the point. The point is, uh, uh, COVID-19, I can infect you with my behavior. So that's creating a, a, I don't know if victim's the right word, but you're, you're definitely um, been violently impacted by my behavior if I didn't modify it. Yeah. And that's a different type of disease that's preventable because we can just prevent it by not having uh, the, the contact that creates the transmission. Yeah. And it's different than saying, I need to eat more healthily and greens and, and, you know, it's, it's great, yeah, no, great, different. Great point. And I think, um, absolutely that this, you know, by locking down that yeah. we can, we can decrease the transmission of this disease. Well, I loved the, what you said about it being a hollow argument because I, my dander has been up. I've been a little, little frustrated with that consistent narrative. And if mm-hmm. I can use, um, if this podcast and if, if, if I get at all frustrated, about communicating something is that type of thinking is deadly to a huge part of the population in that it's so hollow and insular uh, because you're not arguing apples to apples. It's not even relevant. And it's not even an argument that makes any sense from a scientific perspective. Yes. I understand people die of the flu every year. That's despite a lot of things Mm -hmm. that we provide in a capitalistic society, free flu shots. Yeah. How serious is something, Dr. Mm-hmm. Pai, that you can get something for free in this country Yeah, as a capitalistic society? Yeah. And despite every doctor visit I ever have, they tell you about to get a flu shot. Yep. Every time I take my kids to the doctor, yeah. get a flu shot. Yep. And despite that, you can go to Meyer and Metro Health and all these places to get fru, f- free flu stuff. And despite that, 30,000 people still die yeah. and won't get the flu shot. Yeah. Right. Okay? Yeah. So... Mm-hmm. Let's not pretend that COVID-19 isn't a big deal. Yeah. We do take the flu seriously. We shouldn't just say 30,000 people, oh, well, we'll die because COVID-19 is this thing. certain amount of people are going to die anyway. It's yeah. not the same thing. And I think, um, Brian, that's a good point. The flu shot's not, unfortunately, is not 100% preventative of getting the flu. And sure. certainly a percentage of those 30,000 people that may die annually of the flu didn't take some of those preventive measures that may have been able to help them. But I, I think the one thing that's just really, really different about this disease is the the relative virulence, the ability to infect so many. Yeah. And then the order of magnitude when you're talking tens of millions, that gets people thinking. Yeah. Right. And the one thing about the flu that's quite different is when you get real influenza A or influenza B, you are knocked down. Yeah. And you disclose your door, you get in the covers, you take Tylenol, ibuprofen, you drink water, you cannot eat food. You're just hanging on. You're just like, I'm trying to make it. And then yeah. your infectivity there is lower because you're down. The problem here is there's a fair amount of people that don't go down. They right. have minimal stuff, and that creates their normal patterns of stuff they do, and that creates opportunity to infect a lot of other people. That's a great point and a perspective that I hadn't thought of till this conversation. I mean, that really does. I mean, uh, when you're sick with the flu, you can't go anywhere. You don't want to go. You you just can't, you don't even think about it. You're just trying to get till three or four days down the road when this passes. Just let me crawl out of this at some point. And this is not how people, um, you know, that's the challenge with this particular. You're not going to Disney world with the flu, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) You're not doing that. Yeah. You're not going to South by Southwest or, you know, you're not transmitting. 
hunting or getting on a pleasure uh, trip to uh, on Delta somewhere. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. uh, it's a different thing, and you can with COVID nineteen. That's what makes it so dangerous. Well, I got a little uh, I got a little fired up there, but no uh, worries. But uh, <laughs> you know, I I think that's the the thing that's um, a challenge, and I think from Metro Health's uh, perspective, you been consistent about ringing alarm bells, but also being measured and not creating a panic. And that's, that's a fine line that you're walking all the time. And, um, well, one of the things I just want to say, Brian, is that, you know, Metro is part of the university of Michigan health system. I yeah. think you're aware of that. And some of your viewers might be. And so we think of them as national thought leaders on things of this nature, you know, they're working cross silos with all the different schools, public health school, nursing yeah. school, medical school, Right, and um, we're trying to really move in lockstep with them. Um, they are able to scale up um, COVID testing. They can't do thousands of tests a day yet. Yeah. You know, they're focusing on testing their people that are in their hospital or coming to their ER. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hope that they're going to be able to scale up and do some of our inpatients very, very shortly. Yeah. Um, where we suspect it, the turnaround times remem- remain long. There's a backlog now of yeah. people that have been tested. Yeah, one of my connections has been waiting, you know, through a couple odd circumstances, but seven to nine days yeah. to get this test back, and yeah. that's because of the state lab and yep. backups. And yep. and Dr. Hahn, when he was on, he was talking about Michigan being able to do, University of Michigan being able to do the testing, and that he was hopeful that you would be able to do in-house testing at Metro Health as well to get faster results so you can care for people and be more specific about your protocols and caring for them. Um, you know, right now we're what you're yeah, for? that's our hope. We want to be able to turn that around in, in uh, four hours, three hours, eventually with rapid testing. Uh, you know, but right now we're you know we're telling the staff just presume they have it, yeah. right? And in you know without confirmation, you know presume they have it because of the picture and the comorbidities that the patients may have, and and take those precautions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, interesting. Um, I'd like to pivot to something personal I mean, because sure. we did know each other uh, for a while and, and uh, we did a photo shoot here in my studio a while back. But um, we, we had talked about my daughter who has type 1 diabetes and you turned us on to uh, the endocrinology unit there. Yep. And through that conversation, you told me you were sharing about your wife has had some very serious uh, ailments in terms of her own um uh, endocrinology and and that type of thing, and you referred me to her specialist who's at Metro Health, and yep. you're like, this is who my wife goes to. Yep. She could go anywhere in the country to see yeah. anybody, but yeah. this is the dude. Yeah, and now my daughter sees him. But uh-huh. uh, how does it shape when you're when you have somebody in your family who who has some, you know, you're not just a health administrator, yeah. you're a husband and yeah. a father. Yeah. But how has that created empathy in your own life in terms of how you care for patients? Well, you know. Um, Everything that I'm doing today, I, I really think about is to make things better for her. Yeah. You know, and I think when you're, as a physician who's um, a patient or a physician who's a husband of a, a patient, that's a very uncomfortable journey. Um, we know, as good as the healthcare system is, there's always opportunities to be better. We do know in the United States of America that the third leading cause of death is medical errors, right? And those happen in environments like hospitals um, or ICUs and things of that nature. So it just, so it's a very uncomfortable journey. I mean, I'll just kind of relate at a high level, you know, our healthcare journey with with some of her endocrine issues started back in 2018. Um, she developed something called the pituitary macroadenoma. 
she had a pretty involved surgery, brain surgery, to get that um, resected and addressed, and thankfully everything is okay there. Several months after that surgery, she um, uh, she went and saw her endocrinologist, who was sitting across the exam room, and I wasn't there for this visit. And this is this happened in Portland, Oregon, where we used to live, and. Mm-hmm. You know, the endocrinologist said, hey, can you swallow? I think I'm seeing something um, in your neck, like a little lump in your neck. And so she, my wife was like, oh, sure. And then put her on the exam table, felt that uh, thyroid, uh, felt that it was abnormal, felt like she felt a, a nodule. So then we got referred. This was now after the brain surgery, three yeah. or four months after the brain surgery for the pituitary issue. Now there's this thyroid issue that's out there. And so... You know, got a biopsy of that nodule. It came back as something called papillary adenocarcinoma of the thyroid. The good news with that cancer, if there's any good news, is that it tends to be indolent, tends to grow very slowly for the majority. Mm-hmm. Although at the time, my wife was in her early 40s. And uh, so then that, that meant another surgery. Uh, and there were several different options. I'm not going to get into all those details. But the, the right choice for her was to completely remove the thyroid and that's what was done and she's you know knock on wood has had a good mm-hmm. result this was all back in 2018 when we moved out here to west michigan and, and grand rapids um um we hooked her up with a couple of uh people that are in my group uh at metro health um she's had great care at metro health wouldn't change anything about it but one of the things that we wanted uh, to seek some answers to was you know she's quite young to have these multiple endocrine Mm-hmm. issues, you know, uh, someone in their early 40s when diagnosed with some of this stuff. And so, you know, Metro's not far from a world-renowned organization called the Mayo Clinic. And yeah. and just actually as this sort of pandemic was starting to shift around in America, you know, earlier this month, which was March of 2020, we went there and, and saw some of those specialists, um, kind of were able to squeak in before things really got yeah. kind of tighter. So we, we had her see you know people in the endocrine group, the thyroid group, the genetics group. Mm-hmm. Um, she also has high blood pressure, so we went to the hypertension group, women's health, um, yeah. few other you know a few other spots. Um, for you know we want some you know answers around what is this? What are the implications for our children? We have three children, yeah. two boys and a little girl that are the boys are teenagers. Uh, my daughter's um, nine. And so we wanted to know what, if any, implications there might be for them. And so that was one of the main drivers of wanting to yeah. seek out um, that place. And and I can say um, a lot of comfort came from the care that she received, the validation that everything that she had at wherever she had it was on track in, in the Mayo experience, sure. right? Yeah. And that there was opportunity to, to potentially draw some blood and bank it for genetic testing. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's not. Well, that's the field yeah. that they, they really shine too, is that sort of specialized finding genetic factors uh, in things. Uh, you know, we tend to, with two of my daughters, we've been frequent flyers for different reasons for things, but we had umbilical cord stuff tested well, for, to find yeah. some why my youngest daughter had a hemorrhage in, in utero, brain hemorrhage. Right. So, you know, so the, the, the went off there and uh, the. Um, you know, so that's the a center of excellence for a lot of things, and but that genetic factor that you're searching for, yeah. because you're projecting through the health of your next generation yeah. and kids, and yeah. wondering how you can plan and and, uh, but certainly as a as someone who's a leader in a in a healthcare organization, a large one having a big impact, when you're so immersed in the care of your own family, it has to bring some other perspective to how you're 
projecting the future and how you want to drive excellence through your organization? Yeah. So we so just a little perspective. We do about almost five hundred fifty thousand visits annually at Metro Health. These are those face to face visits mm-hmm. that I was talking about earlier. And you know, my role today is really focused on how do we make sure that those people um, get the the best care consistently all the time, and that my role as the leader of the group is to really make sure that we're bringing in the best physician talent we can possibly source to Mm -hmm. that our primary care physicians can refer to. Yeah. Um, Because I think presenting awesome specialist solutions to primary care physicians is a big part of my job. Yeah. And in some areas we may not be as strong as we need to be and I will fight to make sure that we have great solutions across all the areas that we're choosing to focus on. I think of that as one of my main roles is making sure that if you join our group that we're going to get high quality people for you to refer yeah, to well, and that's when the, necessary. I think that's yeah. the horsepower that, that your alignment and, and partnership with the University of Michigan yeah. Health because again, many times when you have a, some type of condition or you need something very complicated done uh, and maybe you run out of uh, specialists in West Michigan, you get sent to University of Michigan for a lot of yeah. reasons. And yep. uh, again, I, it's sad. I, ha- I have all these commonalities, but my... You've, you've been there. Said, it sounds like been you've been there. there. My, yeah. my <laughs> wife's been, or my, our youngest has been there for two eye surgeries, you know, yeah. and very complicated eye surgeries, which mm-hmm. uh, we have one of the best uh, pediatric uh, eye, eye doctors here in, in, in the history of Michigan is right here. And he's like, I don't want to do this surgery. I'm going to send you to U of M. And... Um, you know that sort of horsepower that is brought now through Metro Health, and that is something that I think is so unique. And this isn't a commercial for for Metro Health, but just from speaking from my own experience, is that that's the exciting part: is you have additional resources uh, and talent and research that you rely on that benefits our community every day. Yeah, just maybe two a minute on that. Yeah. I think what. Um, the university strategy has been around um, affiliating or acquiring a, a community health system was really around the, the main knowledge that Ann Arbor, Washington County is, you know, they're just very bottlenecked there with beds, uh, operating rooms, things of that magnitude, right? They just don't have enough of that stuff for the demand and that they really feel like they want to create this high value health system throughout the state mm-hmm. uh, and affiliating with other systems over time probably makes a lot of sense and and making sure that that care that can happen there in that part of the state does happen there because mm-hmm. they can't practically bring it back to to Ann Arbor sure. because of the bed capacity and operating room capacity. It's hard yeah. to spin that up. And so I think there's three things that we're really working on. We want those specialists to come and see patients out here because I think it's important that patients don't have to travel unless absolutely necessary. Yeah. I think there's the opportunity for a Michigan medicine specialist doing surgeries out here, and we have some of that today. We need to scale that. Sure. And then I think the research piece is really, really appealing to healthcare consumers that if something's exhausted, I've, I've done A, B, and C, and then I need something experimental or different, or yeah. I need to enroll in this trial to help other people, it, come, it becomes about that, that we're able to offer those types of trials to consumers, patients out here in West Michigan. I think we're yeah. focused on all of those things. And I'd say the last thing is having the Michigan medicine specialists interact with our community faculty members around case conferences, Yeah, saying, hey, we're presenting Brian's 
uh, case at tumor conference or a pa- mm-hmm. where we're going to present it at rheumatology conference or cardiology conference that we do yeah. with the University of Michigan faculty. So I think those are all things that people are expecting us to do, and we're starting to do all those yeah. things. Yeah. Well, that's one part of medicine that I've, I've learned more about that people I don't think really understand is that and maybe you, uh, is the peer review and peer support about cases. So you meet and talk about specific cases and what you're doing and how you're going to approach the care of that. And you get feedback in a room many times, uh, you know, with uh, five to ten of your colleagues talking about this particular patient and what's happening in the next few, next few days with them. And so you have snapshots of learning. So it isn't you're just... Uh, what I find comforting is that is that you go to a doctor or a specialist for a particular reason for whatever reason you need that person for, but they're uh, they're they're doing case review on an individual basis many times depending on what it is to make more informed decisions yeah. about that patient's care. This is really a, I would say this is a highly patient centered patient centric conference where you and where it's most evolved and where it works really well is really around oncology or cancer care. Yeah. So if you think about it, the treatments there are some form of chemotherapy. It could be surgery. Yeah. It could be radiation. Mm-hmm. It could be um, something experimental. And dr- drug regimens can yeah. change, right. and they end up failing right. for certain people. And, and, you have then, to, yeah, and then every patient has, there's always a bit of nuance, even in the more straightforward cases. Of there's something unique that this person has this other condition that makes us think about something different. right? Yeah. And so I think it's, getting pathologists and radiologists and radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, surgical oncologists together in the same room and sort of from all their different vantage points talking about what's the right multidisciplinary way to best get the best outcome for this type of patient. Now, yeah. not all not all cases go there because it would be overwhelming, but sure. it's, the, it's the particularly unique ones that yeah, make their the way Yeah, it's the trickier ones. Yeah, trickier ones, yeah, absolutely. So given the, given the unique challenges of COVID-19 and, and the dramatic stresses uh, just in planning for this uh, potential surge and how you've modified and are planning for the future, I mean, what are the long, longer-term impacts that you see on the healthcare system? Are there, are there rays of hope in terms of how, we're, uh, how it might impact everybody uh, positively? Yeah, no, there's, with, with any kind of crisis, there's, you have to stop, pause, and think there might be some silver lining with this, right? Otherwise, why, why do we have to go through it? <laughs> right? So right. I tend to take that spin, and I would say from a healthcare vantage point, I think we're going to learn a lot of things from this. I think um, dig, I'm going to call it digital health, sure. virtual health, You know, the ability to see a physician through a FaceTime-type interaction. I think that's going to accelerate dramatically. And I think we're going to learn in these next quarter or two like how much we can deliver to patients in, this, in the privacy of their own home, sure. in the privacy of the physician's home. Right? That's going to really accelerate. And I think the, there's been a lot of rules and regulation, mostly driven by the government, the Centers for Medicare Services, um, that had a lot of rigid rules around virtual health, let's say, and I think they've relaxed a lot of that because of the crisis. You know, they've been like, hey, you can do a, a Skype call, you can do a FaceTime call, sure. you can do... So th- that was not allowed uh, 10 days ago. Yeah, right. <laughs> so so I think with this, la- you know, relaxing on some of the regulatory components of how to give this care, we've, we're now like 
it's opened up like this innovation. So I think this crisis is really breeds innovation. I think the crisis helps melt away the hand-holding change management stuff that we have to sometimes do. Sure. I think we're really trying to present our best selves to the patients. We're really trying to be there for the patients because they find comfort with that. Yeah. Like, hey, I'm having issues with my blood pressure. I'm going to be able to talk to Dr. Pai on the, on yeah. the FaceTime call. I think they, that's, we, need to, we need to create that normalcy for them. Sure. Because as you said, there's so many people that aren't going to get this and still have their normal ailments, right? right. So I think that's one thing. I think two is... Healthcare's been real a laggard in this work from home best practice, mm-hmm. right? Thinking that if you're working from home, you're goofing off, or you're working from home, you're not productive, or if you're working from home, you're playing on the internet. I don't know what we think, but yeah. <laughs> but right. I think um, we know even in the healthcare environment, there's there's a lot of things people do that 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 works. It could work from home. Like we yeah. have these people called social worker care managers or nursing care managers. Think of them as air traffic controllers trying to help patients get from sure. out of the hospital back to the clinic, and they might work with a home health agency. They might work with a behavioral health person, too. And, and I think a lot of that can be virtual. Right sure. now, it's telephonic, so why can't it be yeah. virtual with the video, I think? So we're going to get better about working from home for certain types of jobs. Yeah. There's well, an, I yeah. think that impacts all, not just healthcare, yeah, but that's absolutely. everybody right now is working remotely. I'd, I'd listened to a fascinating podcast with the founder of WordPress. Yeah. And, and the WordPress, uh, that guy's sort of thinking about how, and that was on Sam Harris's podcast. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, it was fascinating to think about how this uh, crisis right now around COVID-19 is accelerating the normalcy of this remote, uh, call it tele or digital conference or whatever, or working from there. This is a fundamental shift. I don't think that's going away. I think a large percentage uh, or a substantial percentage of people are, are going to continue to work from home more, maybe not exclusively, yeah. but uh, no, I abso- the, the so capability is there. I absolutely see that across multiple and different industries. And then I think the last two things that I've sort of noticed, I think it's the prioritization of others that we're now, I think we're a little more conscious about that. Like, I don't want my parents to get it. Sure. You don't want your yeah. parents to get it. They're probably older and they probably have some conditions. Yeah, it's right? my mom's 80th birthday yeah, today. Okay. So, today. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, well, happy birthday, Brian's <laughs> mom. But but it's just sort of like this disease in, in that population. I know younger people can get more severe cases as well and need a ventilator and things. But I'm really thinking about that population because some countries have had to make some tough calls about how to treat those types yeah. of patients. And I, we don't want to do that here. So I think prioritizing others, thinking about others. And then I think the last piece is, um, that I found is this social connection with your unit, like your family unit. Yeah. Like I'm spending more time talking to my kids than I thought maybe in a, when they're at school or, you know, it just, I don't know. That's something I've noticed about ourselves. We're talking, we're interacting, we're, you know, laying on the bed together. Yeah. I don't know, doing stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the, well, you know, the coolest things that have come out of the last couple of weeks is just, you know, I, I have a 20 and a, and a 18 year old. Yeah. And just mm-hmm. watching TikToks with them yeah. and just <laughs> laughing like crazy. The amount of laughter that we've had gut busting yeah. <laughs> is, is, you know, in a normal work, normal uh, flow of life, yeah. you know, you don't get those moments as often. So, yeah, that whole human side of, of empathy and just really sort of um, taking in how precious our health is, what a razor's edge it is to be healthy. Uh, any moment we can be um, inflicted with something that... that uh, yeah, we need, does, to, we need to value that yeah. and um, don't take it for granted because it can slip. 
Well, the other thing, yeah, and I, I just, that, that idea of, um, I think if we can create systems and solutions, I think is a better word. If you can create solutions that, that care for the most vulnerable in society, whether it's the elderly right now, it actually flows up to all of us. So if you're ter- trying to spare an elderly person from getting infected, you're actually helping yourself. So you might not need it today. You might not be sick today. You might be able through just caring about one other person or a family member or a neighbor. Well, you know, Brian, I hope to be elderly someday. So yeah. I, I, I hope people that are in my age bracket today would be thinking about me when it's, when it's my time to be in that bracket, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, one thing I noticed during this conversation is I've touched my face 500,000 times during that, and you haven't touched your face once. So kudos on you for that. And if it's very intentional. It's hard to it's do hard, that. It's hard, but, I, yeah, but <laughs> yeah. anyway, I've noticed I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm this guy. Yeah, you know, yeah, I'm yeah, listening. Yeah, and, yeah. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I really appreciate your time, especially during this, this uh, particular pressure on our community and our health care system that you would come in and have such a detailed conversation about what's happening at Metro Health and just from your expertise it's been wonderful to learn from you and uh, I, I appreciate it and I hopefully uh, we'll be old uh, together yeah, yeah absolutely yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> we'll be on the golf course some, uh, 30 years from now yeah. figuring it out you know yeah. still swinging away so uh, anyway Brian, no, Brian, uh, I'd say thank you. Um, I really appreciated the engagement the opportunity to talk to the viewers um, we're going to get through this Um it's going to require sacrifice from everybody, but we're going to be better from this. Yeah, and I, I thank you personally, but your Metro's Health uh, and University of Michigan Health's commitment to this podcast has been a tremendous partnership. I could not have written out on paper a dream scenario in terms of how I've been able to interact with uh, your organization, and it's a, it just speaks to your innovation and insight that you underwrite a little little engine like this one and and we're growing and it's exciting and, it, and it's through no small part of uh, your support of this podcast so thank you very very much we're, we're thrilled to be a part of it and the sky's the limit yeah man all, all right. right thank you take care take care well, thank you, Dr. Pai. There is hope. There is uh, positivity that can result from um, the outcome of this uh, severe crisis we're under. So uh, what a great conversation with Dr. Pai. How relatable is that information and how conversational? Sometimes you think of experts in the health field as uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, not the best conversationalist, but man, that was awesome. And uh, thank you to Dr. Pai. Please, all of us, let's stay home. All of us stay home. Don't touch your face and, uh, and uh, clean things uh, and limit, limit, limit our social interactions. It will be everything to everyone if we just take care of all of us. All right. Take care. Have a good week. This Full Exposure podcast episode has been made possible through the support of Metro Health, University of Michigan Health, and Dr. Peter Hahn who believe that creativity and the arts are essential to a rich, healthy, and fulfilling life.